0: Hey, y'all, you're listening to Crying and Trying, the podcast, the comprehensive guide for cultivating emotional intelligence in a fucked up world. This podcast focuses on how oppressive systems and the human experience interact and impact our mental health. As a disclaimer, I am not a licensed mental health care professional or an expert. I am just one human who has lived through the mental health experience, sharing my story and giving my advice. Please, if you or someone you know needs help, seek it out immediately by a professional. I will have hotlines, warm lines, and other support resources available in the show notes. Howdy, everybody. It's me, your host, Lexi. Welcome back to another episode of Crying and Trying. If this is your first time here, welcome. Thank you for giving the show a chance. And if you're a regular listener, welcome back. Um so March is sexual assault awareness month. Um and last year I really wanted to do an episode for sexual assault awareness. However, March was the first month that I was podcasting and I felt that that was a really heavy subject matter to jump right into. It's April. April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, not March, April. And I wasn't really ready to talk about it. You know, I've shared my story a lot before. And um, I'm not, it's not, it's not a secret, but I haven't like publicly announced it anywhere. I mean, I feel like I have, but anywho, so... Now that we're a year into podcasting and I, you know, have a feel for what this is like, I figured um, now is the perfect time to to share that part of my story. Um, So this episode is probably going to be really triggering for anybody um, that is a survivor of sexual assault, specifically childhood sexual assault. Um, so there's a lot of that in here. I'm going to try to not be super graphic and try to give trigger warnings before specific things happen. Um, there's also going to be mentions of physical and emotional abuse. Um, I'm trying to think of what else I don't know. Um, and I just, you know, part of the reason why i'm sharing my story is um so other people feel empowered to share theirs so other people don't feel ashamed about theirs um and i don't know i've just been seeing on social and i don't have specifics um because it's something that upsets me when i see rhetoric around sexual assault and rape and statistics and people talking about it just cuz it, it it brings up a lot of stuff for me um But, um, you know, like I've seen, oh, well, like, you know, you definitely know someone who's been sexually assaulted, and then people being like, oh, no, I don't, no one has told me anything. And, like, with my story specifically, like, I had cops ask me if I was being abused, and I lied and I said no, and you know, that is a very common thing for victims of abuse it's very very hard to get yourself out of those situations because as as much as people are like oh yeah just tell the cops just say that that they're abusing you and that's it it's not an easy process it's not like one and done you don't tell the cops and then they're out of your life like if you do decide to press charges it is a long intense dehumanizing process. Um, and I honestly don't really remember why I decided to go through that process. Um, eventually I think my friends convinced me that like, it was, I deserved justice and like, I deserved to share my story and, and this man deserved to go to jail. And that's, um, a difficult thing for me to process because I'm also, learning about prison abolition. And um, I don't really believe in our justice system. And um, our justice system is skewed and and racist and um, rooted in slavery. And, you know, I still feel gross that I participated in that by having someone incarcerated for a crime that they committed against me. However, the crime that was committed against me was extremely heinous. You know, as <laughs> you shut out. we joke through our trauma. Um, but seriously, like it's, it, it is a long tiring process. I still, to this day, um i'm in contact with the victim witness advocate it has changed that person is not in that role anymore as different people that i've talked to now but they still reach out to me they still contact me they still let me know what happens and um because i am a victim i am told of all of his whereabouts and all of his moves and everything about him and um not everything about him. He's entitled to some privacy, but when he was in prison, if there was any sort of change about where he was or what ward he was in or what kind of level of protection he was in, I got told about that. When he started to go and um, request parole, I got told about that. When there were parole hearings, I got told about that. And I was also asked to go to those parole hearings. I didn't have to, um, but you know, if I wanted to share my story and speak my piece, um, I, I needed to, to go and, um, you know, I didn't have to read it. There was one that I ended up not going to, and this was because it ended up being during the pandemic. And it was like really hard for me to get there because I was working. There wasn't like scheduling issues. So I just wrote a statement and had my, um, advocate read it for me there. Um, But, you know, I've been involved in this process. I said it started when I was 17. I'm 30 now. And I'm still, like, entrenched in the court system. Like, I still have regular contacts with them. And I still, you know, like, this is something I think about often. This man actually um, lives in a halfway house that's right around the corner from my best friend's house. And I discovered that, um, like, last fall, And it was really hard for me to, um, to realize that I might bump into him on the street. Like he's allowed, he's out now he's out, he's, he's a free man. He's on parole, um, or probation or what I I don't really understand, but he has like, um, you know, he's not allowed to go on the internet. He's not allowed to, um, have social media profiles. He is a registered sex offender. He's not allowed to he's not allowed to be around kids he's not allowed to live near playgrounds or schools you know there's all these restrictions um but like i'm i'm still dealing with these consequences i also you know just i know people lie i know people make false accusations but honestly like if 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 things are getting to the court level and someone is bringing a case to that point like believe them it's just believe them and until like maybe they're lying they might be but like the amount of bullshit that you have to go through in order to get to a court case the amount of times I was interviewed the amount of time I spent in a police station the amount of time I spent in interview rooms and being prepped and being questioned and like, you know, I have a bad memory because of my trauma. And that's something that is it plays against you in a in a court case. Um, Like if you don't remember everything exactly, like your first statement that you make to police, if you change from that in any way, shape or form, like that's going to get brought up. Are you a liar? Do you not remember? And it's just like, that's not how life is. We don't remember everything specifically. Every time you remember something, it's a memory of a memory. And so it's like the the more I'm talking about, the, it's it's a hard, a difficult process. Your whole life is on display. People, like, I was a minor, so there, there was privacy with it. But, like, you know, people, there were people in the courtroom. It was open. It was allowed to, like, family members. And, you know, like I said, I like, it's my whole life was on display. This is very private information. Who would want to do that? voluntarily like just to screw someone over just to get someone in prison you have to keep track of all those lies like I just I don't understand why we don't believe survivors um and and you know I think part of it is that we don't want to um believe that that's possible and that people can do these things and people in our communities and people in our churches and people in our schools um could do these things it's easier to uh, make it be a boogeyman it's easier to say it doesn't exist or it's easier to blame it on the trans community and the queer community and have scapegoats because we don't want to deal with the truth um but the truth of the matter is (laughs) like under capitalism predators and criminals are our leadership (laughs) like look at Donald Trump, he, uh, had so many allegations against him about, like, inappropriate touching and, uh, sexual assault and all of these, all of these allegations, and he was allowed to run for president and allowed to be president, and, you know, we, we don't take this stuff seriously, but, like, this, you know, I was molested, I was raped for five, almost six years, and it affects me every single day it has affected my entire life and I have my victim impact statement still that, you know, I might read as a, as a Minnesota or something someday. Um, so you guys can see what I said in court and, but yeah, anyway, I went back to what I was getting with this, you know, it's hard for me to, to be, to like have sent someone to prison with my testimony and, and, and pressing charges but also believing that like our prison system is broken and we need to tear it down and start from scratch. Um, it's really hard to like, I mean, just like, you know, I'm talking about ethical consumption under capitalism while like making you listen to my ads so that I can make money from this podcast. Like we're allowed to participate in these systems and also criticize them. Um, and I have a lot more research and a lot more learning to do about prison abolition and the justice system and justice reform. Um, and it's something that's hard for me to, to learn about. Um, but I'm getting to the point where that's going to be a little bit easier. So, um, so I mean, we kind of got to back up a lot to get the basis of why I was so, um, why I was the perfect candidate for being groomed. So, you know, I mentioned before that my family has always kind of been poor. And when I was up until the age of eight, I lived with both my parents. Um, My parents had been separated for a bit um, when I was like six or seven and gotten back together. But it was still a very unhealthy relationship. You know, my mom, was working a lot of extra hours to support us financially my dad was dealing with um addiction issues um specifically alcoholism and porn addiction um so you know I never really saw my dad even when he was around um I don't remember much of my father um and you know I knew my parents didn't get along so I was um my mom parentified me a hundred percent because you know when they split up and we were homeless for a while um you know she had to pick up extra jobs to keep supporting us so I was home with my younger brother um I'm three years older than him so you know having a six or seven eight eight year old watching a three or four or five year old um not ideal but it was you know the situation we were in so this all culminated, you know, my parents had gotten together. My dad had been really manipulative and abusive before. Um, nothing that I had ever seen up to that point. Um, you know, they were very good at keeping it behind closed doors, except for, you know, I'd hear raised voices. Um, but this all kind of came to a head. Um, and this is, you know, we're going to get into uh, physical abuse and a lot of emotional abuse and threats of um physical harm. So I remember this day so vividly in my brain. um, And it was actually September 8th or 9th. I can't remember which of 2001, literally right before 9-11 happened. So I was in the living room with my uh, little brother. We were watching TV and I hear yelling. So, you know, the standard thing is move my brother into the bedroom. We lived in a uh, single wide trailer at the time. Um, My parents' bedroom was on one end and our bedroom was on the other. So, you know, there's not a lot of places to go. It's a small house. Um, But I would always bring my brother to the bedroom so that, you know, he wasn't hearing the brunt of it. Um, So I did that. And then, you know, I was concerned about my mother. So I went And I watched from the hallway and I saw my dad pick up my mom, like pick her up off the ground. So her feet weren't touching the ground and, um, threw her at a wall. And my mom was, my mom was four months pregnant at that time. Um, uh, this was the first time I'd ever seen my father hit my mother and, um, I was eight. So I was not even, I think I was seven. Yeah. 2001, I was seven. So I, um, you know, started crying because I was little. I saw my dad hurting my mom and my mom was a, she's a larger woman. So she had put her whole body weight into trying to protect me and my brother. So she's, had gotten my father and her in their bedroom. And she sat down in front of the door. It was one that like swung into the bedroom. So with her sitting down on the ground, um, my dad couldn't move her. Um, And my dad, you know, I I mentioned that he was very manipulative Um, in the past had made it so that we couldn't leave. My dad was a mechanic. And so he would literally take parts out of the engine so that the car couldn't run. Um, And this was late 90s early 2000s like we didn't have cell phones we didn't have Lyft and Uber we also lived in the middle of nowhere I lived in the mountains and in Tennessee it took me 45 minutes to get to town to go to school um so it's not like we had anybody close by that could help um but my mom sat down and I remember her saying you know go get the car keys because she knew that if it got to a point where my dad, um, was thinking that far ahead that he would take the keys or, uh, and hide them somewhere. So we couldn't leave. Um, you know, this was the nineties. We were in the middle of nowhere. So we left our keys in the car. Like (laughs) I, my closest neighbors were half a mile away. Um, so I went outside to go get the keys to hide them from my dad. Um, and, at this point i could hear my dad screaming like don't you fucking dare how dare you listen to your fucking stupid bitch mother you know all the swears and then i um heard glass breaking and i turned around and i my dad had punched a hole through the his bedroom window um at this point i screamed you know bloody murder i i my neighbors did say they could hear me down the road um screaming crying like and at this point he threatens me he says I'm gonna fucking kill you if you listen to your fucking mother don't you dare um meanwhile I'm hysterical (laughs) like he had never threatened me um at that point so this was a really scary time for me um I got the keys and you know the rest I don't really remember it was kind of a blur but I do remember going in and calling the cops because at that point I was, I was scared for myself. Um, I called the police. And then as soon as I called the police and my dad was aware of that, he like flipped a switch, completely calmed down. It was a different person. Um, he went and like calmly picked up all the glass and like cleaned it up and cleaned his hand and wrapped it and then went and took the keys and hid them in the wood pile outside. So the the cops come, they do arrest my father just for the night because it's a domestic violence incident. I don't know the details. I was very young, Um, but I remember my dad berating me before they showed up, like, you shouldn't have called the cops, like, this is your fault, like, you shouldn't do that. So on top of, you know, seeing my mother get the shit beat out of her, having my own life threatened, and watching my dad... Turned into a very scary man. Um, I was being told that it was my fault, this situation. So that night, um, you know, while he was in jail, my mom called her friend. We packed a single suitcase each, drove to her friend's house, spent the night. And then the next morning we got on a plane. Oh, So this must've been the ninth. We got on a plane and flew to, yeah. So the, the incident with my parents happened on the eighth. Then on the ninth, we went to um, my mom's friend's spent the night there, flew that day. And then the next day we were supposed to start school we arrived in Arizona. I live with my grandmother. And the next day was September 11th. Um, so on top of having this traumatizing event, you know, my family being ripped apart, I didn't even get to say goodbye to any of my friends. Um, this was, you know, before school had started. um, so I didn't get to say goodbye to anybody. I had to move across the country. I I had knew nobody where we were. It was a really scary time and I had to start school and then this national um terrorist attack happened. Um So it was a lot. And then, you know, I hadn't heard from my dad until my birthday, which was later that month, September 30th. And on that phone call, I remember my dad blaming me yet again. You know, this is all your fault. I wouldn't have gone to jail if you didn't lie to the cops. If you didn't tell them all of those lies. Um, and so you know, this is the start of the deterioration of my relationship with my father, um, which opened the door for me being the perfect candidate to be groomed. Um, so a lot of this, you know, comes from my broken home life, but also from my mom's own issues, you know um over the next few years she ended up um having a few boyfriends and you know all of them ended up being alcoholics and emotionally abusive probably physically abusive you know I never saw any more um physical harm happen to her but I heard the emotional abuse I was emotionally abused Um, you know, I think my mom just had a really hard time with her relationship ending and the man, the father of her children, um, being a monster. And like, you know, her life was torn asunder as well. And on top of it, she's now a single mother and she's pregnant with her third child, like has nothing to her name. So, you know, my mom was trying to cope as well. And I acknowledge that. And, you know, I don't blame her for the situation, that we were in you know i blame my abuser because he capitalized on that and he recognized that we were vulnerable and took advantage of it um so my mom had gone through a number of partners and they weren't super serious but you know it just kind of further made that wound deeper of not having not having a father, not having a father figure, not having someone who, you know, loved me unconditionally and cared for me. Um, And then my dad eventually moved to Arizona. Uh, He followed us there, you know, wanted to see his kids, whatever. Um, We ended up having uh, split custody. So my mom had us most of the time. I think my dad got us every other weekend or something like that. And I hated going to my dad's. I hated it. He lived in a crappy, tiny apartment. You know, I had to sleep on the floor. Um, My brother got the couch and then my other brother slept in bed with my dad. I was treated like a servant. I was treated like a maid. Um, I remember vividly my dad taking my brothers to the park to go play baseball. And he'd be like, oh, why don't you cook dinner while we're gone? Or why don't you clean the house? Or, you know, he'd be playing video games and he'd ask me to do some chores Mind you, I'm like a 10-year-old child, um, so parentified also by my father. Um, so, you know, I started resenting my dad more, and eventually I got to the point where I didn't want to see him, and I didn't want to go to his house because I didn't consider him my father. I didn't feel like he loved me, and... um I eventually, my mother let me make the choice that I didn't want to go seeing him anymore. Like, my brother still continued seeing him, but I was done. I was like, I don't, this isn't something I want to do. It's not um, helpful for me. So I stopped seeing him. And I don't remember exactly the timing around a lot of this stuff. You know, I was between 10 and 12. Um because I don't remember a lot of my childhood, I have like very specific moments, but that is part of um, trauma and trauma brain and um, traumatizing childhoods is that you compartmentalize and you your memory, um, your brain kind of protects itself, makes it hard to remember certain things. Um, so, you know, all this is happening. And then I don't remember, I think it must have been around when I was 10 like around when I stopped seeing my dad um my mom or my brother was in a basketball league like a rec league and his coach he was best friends or really good friends with his nephew who was on the same team so my mom ended up becoming really good friends with um his my brother's friend so we'll call this woman T um and T her brother was the coach of this team um and so you know my mom started spending a lot more time with T. um and started we would go over to their house and like you know we started becoming friends with their family. Um and over time T's brother um we'll call him H um no we'll just call him Bob. That'll be easier cuz it's a generic name. So Bob um you know started taking more of an interest in our family because we were friends with his nephew um he started coaching me basketball and you know I actually started really enjoying having a positive male figure in my life um you know we were spending a lot of time over there and eventually my mother did start dating him however you know there's a lot of stuff that happened in between and I'm gonna do a big trigger warning now um I don't think that my mom was dating Bob at this point yet, but he, um, you know, was spending the night at our house quite often. He also was an alcoholic um, and, you know, so he would come over to our house and drink too much and couldn't drive home. So he would sleep in my brother's room. He'd take Tyler's bed and then Tyler would go sleep. My other brother had a bunk bed. um, So he'd go in there and he'd just stay the night so you know he was a pretty regular fixture at our home and so this is trigger warning for the the assault it was um a day that my brother had a baseball game and I you know I'm 11 so I sleep in you know I didn't want to go and my mom was, like, freaking out. They were running late, and I, like, she couldn't just leave me home, although she definitely could have. I had been home alone by myself many times. But, you know, she didn't want to leave me home. She was like, no, you got to come with, blah, blah, blah. So she took both my brothers, and Bob was like, oh, hey, don't worry about it. I'll get Lexi. Like, let let them get ready, and then we'll come to the game after. Um. So I was in the shower, the way the house was set up, my bedroom was directly across from the bathroom. So like I had to take one step across the hallway and I was in my room. And I remember I got out of the bathroom. I took that step and the next thing I know I was on the ground. And I was being raped. Um, and it was over pretty quick. <laughs> like I don't remember the details. I just remember it ending and then me sobbing. And then Bob being like, okay, we got to go to the baseball game, like get ready. And I just had to pretend like everything was fine. Um, So, you know, I was 11 and I was raped and this man was a huge part of my life. I didn't say anything and it ended up becoming a more regular thing so you know I said that he would stay the night and it started that he would come into my bedroom at night and he would start he would get into my bed and he would rape me and assault me and um you know have me touch him and you know he was very brazen like he also like at this point I had started before the rape had happened, you know, I, I globbed onto him, treated him like my dad. I sat on his lap. I followed him everywhere. Like I was like hurting because I didn't have a dad and I just wanted a dad. And he filled that role and saw that I was vulnerable and saw that I was the perfect candidate for him to do what he did um so you know I ended up becoming a regular thing he would come over and like he would hang out in the garage all the time he also smoked cigarettes so like that wasn't happening in the house so he'd hang out in the garage and he would um smoke his cigarettes and then like I'd go hang out with him and it ended up being that over time he would be like oh hey you all need to go inside. I need to talk to Lexi alone. Like it was always like I was in trouble or like, you know, we were talking about my problems or there was always some excuse, some way for us to be alone. And then he would continue to abuse me. Um, You know, I remember really vividly this one time we went to the park, like everybody, my whole family, we live like right around the corner from the park. And on the way home, Bob and I fell back, the rest of my family turned a corner and he pulled me and started making out with me on a public sidewalk. Um, I was 11. This man was 35. Um, and just like, you know, things like that. We'd watch a movie, everyone would watch a movie and he'd have me come sit next to him and then he'd start doing things underneath the blanket and no one noticed. And that's the thing that just like truly, truly baffles me is no one caught on, um, you know? And at this point I was calling in dad and at this point, you know, I was fully, fully groomed. Like the first few times it happened, Like, I honestly don't even remember the progression. I remember, like, that first time that it happened. And then I remember these specific instances of him, like, coming into my bedroom and him taking me into the garage. And then, you know, all of a sudden, it's just a normal part of my life. And, um, you know, I 100% had Stockholm Syndrome to a point. And this is really hard to talk about on a public platform, but like, you know, I got to the point where I considered him my boyfriend and he wasn't my boyfriend. He was a 35 year old man and I was an 11 year old child and he was raping me and he was abusing me and he was taking advantage of me. Um, but I just wanted to be loved. You know, I just wanted a dad. And he was loving me. It felt like it was. He was giving me attention. He was buying me things. He was spending time with me. He wasn't treating me like a a kid. I felt like a grown-up when I was around him. And over time, you know, I called him my boyfriend. Not publicly, but, like, in my head, it felt like I had a relationship. And it's really gross to think about that. But, you know, it's just he's so good at what he does. He manipulated me so completely. Like I remember he would go on trips and he would like come back with lingerie for me. I was 11. I remember washing that stuff in the sink with detergent because like I couldn't let my mom see this underwear and these bras. She asked me where they came from. And then there was this one time I remember I was you know my bro- my dad came to pick up my brothers and I was sitting on Bob's lap at the computer and we were watching something on the computer screen and my dad saw it and he was very uncomfortable. And you know this my dad was the only person that noticed that something was wrong. So my dad did report it to the police. Um and I remember I was in 8th grade English class and the police came and pulled me out of class and I had to go to the front office and I talked with them and I didn't know what was happening but as soon as you know there were police and they started talking about you know your dad is worried about Bob and you know all of these things I lied through my fucking teeth it was like no nothing's happening and you know my um my abuser, Bob, like we'd had conversations. He was like, you know, no one will understand what we have is special. They just won't get it. And you know, at that point we talked, he had plans. He was like, you know, we'll wait till you're 18 and then we'll run away and get married. And, and I was like, yeah, let's do it. Like I was fully, well, he just had complete control over me, complete control, you know, like It's still so hard to think about all of the details, like just how it wasn't obvious to other people. But anyway, you know, like we call he called all this stuff with the cops and then we had supervised visits for a while while the investigation was happening. And, you know, I remember once my grandma was doing the supervised visitation. She was watching us and we weren't supposed to be alone together. And somehow we got alone and he ended up raping me in my mom's closet while my grandma was there for a supervised visit. Um, like, it was just always about how we could sneak away so that he, so that he could rape me. And, you know, at that time, it was like, oh, so we could have sex like I my brain was still so underdeveloped. I was so manipulated that I felt like this was normal and fine and healthy, even though deep down I knew it wasn't because he had talked. He was like, don't you can't tell anybody. It's a secret, like it's a secret. Like, so I know it's a secret. Uh, why would it be a secret if it's, if it's okay, you know, but we can get into that at another time. So, you know, all this is happening and he is slowly getting more control over my life. I wasn't allowed to go hang out with friends as much. I remember we had a pool party for me. I think it was a birthday party one year. I don't know if it was a birthday party, but we had a pool party and, you know, I have friends over we're all hanging out in the pool and there was a boy that I had a crush on and I was flirting with him because I'm 11 12 you know and I remember Bob getting so pissed off he pulled me away from the party um brought me to my bedroom and started like screaming at me about how like how could I do that to him and like was like calling it like that I was cheating on him and like bro like I'm an 11 year old child at my own party like I just want to talk to a cute boy um so you know over time he alienated me from a lot of the people that I cared about and a lot of people that I was close to it would get to the point where you know we'd spend so much time alone in the garage and he would like I had to pretend that I was in trouble or he yelled at me or something or other Um, you know, at this time too, I want to mention that because I was being molested and I was being abused, I was on the internet talking to people in chat rooms. I ended up talking to another man in his thirties who was living in Florida at the time. And I was bracket like, Oh, my boyfriend's 35, blah, blah, blah. And it ended up becoming a scary, dangerous situation where this man was threatening me. He had found my address, like, all of this stuff. So I ended up having to tell my mom and Bob about this. And Bob was rip shit. He had to play the part of being, like, oh, the concerned father figure. And then behind closed doors was, like, you cheated on me. How dare you, you fucking slut, to a 12-year-old child that he's been molesting. You know, obviously, I'm going to think that that's fine. I have an old man with an intimate relationship with me. What's wrong with me talking with another man online? You know, like, and I got in so much trouble for that, even though it wasn't really my fault, but I got in a lot of trouble. I wasn't allowed to go on the computer. And then he used that, Bob used that as an opportunity to get me alone more because I was in trouble. So he would talk to me by myself. And it was in this time period, trigger warning, um, suicide attempt. But it was in this time period that I did commit, try to commit suicide. I, um, was going to hang myself by my bunk bed with like a belt. And, you know, while I felt loved and special, I also felt dirty and gross. And I knew that what was happening was wrong, um, but then we got to the point where Bob, you know, was dating my mom. And he also had me um, start dating his son. His son lived in New Hampshire. Uh, we lived in Arizona. His son would come over for the summers. Um, so, you know, he had me start seeing his son as a cover. And over time, like I actually did really love his son. <laughs> So, like, it's super fucked up, you know, my mom is dating this man, Um, that man is molesting me, and I am dating his son. And all of that is, like, is a cover. So, like, you know, if my mom's dating his dad, and I'm dating his son, and, you know, obviously nothing's happening. This goes on for, like, a year or so, and, um, you know, now I'm a freshman in high school. And the abuse is still happening. Um, and, you know, I was really starting to come into my own, like I was in all advanced classes. I was, um, in one of the advanced orchestras, like it just was really good. Like I did well in school. And part of it too was, you know, I didn't, wasn't allowed to have a life outside of school. Wasn't allowed to hang out with my friends. Um, barely, Because, you know, Bob didn't want to relinquish that control over me. And, um, you know, got to the point where he somehow convinced my mom to move all the way across the country. So we could go live near his kids. So he was divorced and, you know, his kids lived in New Hampshire and he only got to see them the summers and some vacations. And um, so we picked up and moved across the country again. I left all my friends. I didn't have a choice. Like I was um, going to be first chair in band. You know, I had all these things coming up on the horizon. I was really excited about and I had to leave everything behind. And, you know, at the time I didn't realize what was happening, but it was 100% manipulative abuser behavior trying to alienate us from our support circles, from our family, from the people who, um, you know, could help me to get out of that situation um and so we did we moved across the country and you know I remember being in his truck sobbing as I was listening to a mix that my best friend had made for me and he was belittling me you know, saying, like, you know, get the fuck over it, like, blah, 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 so it was just, like, it was a really hard time, you know, we moved there the summer before sophomore year, so we were there at the beginning of the summer, I spent the whole summer doing homework to catch up, like, um, on German, because, like, my German curriculum was, like, a year behind there, so I was studying, Um, I was doing math work to get ready to, like, be, ready to be at a new school in a completely different part of the country so I didn't have any friends um you know I didn't have any anybody I spent the whole summer reading and I remember you know when we first moved in and we got there my mom's downstairs unpacking and I remember him pushing me into my bedroom and raping me in my bedroom and you know Over time, like, his kids would come and um, stay with us, and so, like, it was just, it was really messed up, you know, at this point, I'm 14, and I've been sexually active for three years at this point, you know, I had a pregnancy scare, I thought that I had an STI, um, all of these things that were really scary as an 11-year-old and um you know so his boy my his son was my boyfriend would come over and so i was sexually active with him too like it didn't start right away but you know it came because i was already sexually active so like how is this any different and yes it's fucked up and yes it's very uncomfortable to talk about it but i was you know having sex with um my boyfriend and then you know, in the same day, getting raped by his father. Um, and so, you know, I was still very isolated. I still didn't have a ton of friends. This is sophomore year of high school. And I think that it was about a year that we were in, in New Hampshire. And, you know, we had, even with, even with Bob, we had, um, our utilities got shut off. We were food insecure. Um, there's a lot of problems. We still weren't happy. We were still poor. We were still, you know, at this point, my mom and her relationship with Bob was getting worse. You know, he's abusive to her as well and manipulative towards her as well. And, you know, the whole time, like behind closed doors, he's telling me like, oh, your mom's fucking disgusting. She's gross, blah, blah, blah. Like, but he was dating my mom. So like he was also having sex with my mom and then coming and reaping me. So it's just this big gross clusterfuck. Um you know, I had no support, I had no lifelines, we had no family and it finally got to a point, you know, like my brothers um and Bob's kids had a lot of issues. My youngest brother and my middle brother like they got teased mercilessly. They were very emotional boys and they showed any semblance of emotions or feelings or sensitivity. They got teased mercilessly and honestly got the crap beat out of them by um Bob's kids. Like they, they would wrestle, but it was like, you know, they'd get the shit beat out of them. And I don't know what the turning point was. I think, you know, I finally was hitting a point where I was, my eyes were getting open to the abuse. Um, I think I also was just sick of seeing my mom get hurt because she was dating this man and he was treating her like shit and talking about her like shit. And like, you know, I wasn't, I was a teenager. I didn't love my mom at the time. Like I had a lot of problems with her, but it was really hard to see her get treated like that. And it got to the point too, where I was getting treated like shit. I was always, you know, the princess. That's what he called me. And this is before I had realized that I was queer and realized that I was non-binary but he called me his little princess and like you know i was the golden child and i could never do anything wrong you know right because he was abusing me and then I got to the point where like i was getting in trouble and i was getting yelled at and i wasn't the perfect little girl anymore and like i i was a bitch now and i was getting called a cunt and he was starting to threaten my life again um you know many times he would say you know i know people in hell's angels If I need to take care of anybody, all I got to do is make one phone call and they're gone. So like I was scared for my life, afraid to speak up, afraid to say anything to anybody. I don't remember what the turning point was, but you know, my, I was getting pissed off at Bob and I didn't want to be around him anymore. And I had tried to distance myself as much as I could because I was dating his son I loved his son he was my first real boyfriend and like the first person that I chose to be intimate with like I always say when um and I said this at court you know I still consider myself a virgin because I didn't choose to have sex someone raped me they took that from me um I mean I wasn't a virgin because I was but you know the sentiment was there like this was the first person that i chose to give myself to and and somehow i convinced my mom to to move away from him to get away from him and we got our own place and this was probably mid junior year um we we got our own place like we started i started building friendships you know being a normal kid being a normal teenager or trying to anyway and he was very, he was stalking us. He would go on Facebook and he would leave us threatening messages and he would, um, you know, text us and he would leave me voicemails and leave us threatening voicemails. And I ended up having to get a restraining order against him. Um, so we did get a restraining order. And then eventually, you know, I'm talking to one of my friends and I opened up to him and I told him what had happened. And at that point, nobody knew what was going on in my life. I um, just kind of pretended it never happened and pushed it to the side. And it came out and my friend, um, you know, his name was Sam. And he told me, you know, you you have to go to the police. You need, that man needs to pay for what he did. And I didn't want to. And I think it took him a few days to convince me, but he finally did. He took me to the police station and I talked to a detective. I told him what happened. And because I was a minor, I was only 16 at this time. Um, so the abuse happened from like 11 to 16, so almost five years. Um, and because I was a minor, I had to tell my mom. So the police brought me to my house, stood in the room with me as I told my mom. And then this is, you know, the start of the deterioration of my relationship with my mom, because when I tell her, you know, Bob, molested me for years. Her first response was, oh my God, I'm the worst mom in the world. How could I ever let this happen? Not comforting me, not seeing how I'm doing. It was all about her. Um, So, you know, then it's this giant mess. You know, I'm telling my friends, we're um, starting the process for court. (laughs) I had a victim witness advocate that I talked to um, that helped prepare me for trial. And you know, this all, this was junior year. It took a few years. Um, Court didn't happen until I was in college. It was my freshman year of college. Um, So I was still 17 at the time um, that I had to testify and everything. But we went to court and I got eviscerated. They just ripped me to pieces and said so, tried to make me look like a terrible person and disparage my character. You know, I had a tattoo at this point. No, I must have been 18. Yeah. Yeah. It was after I turned 18 because I had a um a tattoo and I had a few piercings. So I just freshly turned eighteen. And I remember, you know, like when I got on the stand, I had to tell my story in detail. Um and I forgot a, a few details in in telling um my story but there was charges of you know sodomy there was charges of um sexual assault of a minor there was charges of um digital penetration which is you know fingers and then there was uh, penetration with a foreign object um he'd also raped me with beer bottles on a number of occasions um so you know all of these things happening. I had talked to so many cops. I had gone through so many things. He had done a lie detector test. He passed the lie detector test with flying colors the whole time, you know, just thinking that he sticking to his gun, saying he didn't do it, that I was lying, that I was a slut, that I was a stupid bitch, all this stuff. Um, And, you know, his, his kid, one of his kids, the one I was dating, testified on my behalf and his mom and his stepdad testified on my behalf because they had seen inappropriate things and it was all people had noticed here and there but like not enough where anyone said anything or approached me or tried to do anything about it which is really really upsetting very hard to come to terms with still to this day but I remember on that stand they just tried to defame my character by saying like, you know, look at her, she has piercings, she has tattoos. And I remember this was like first when voice texting, like or text to voice came out and we had these shitty phones and me and my friend were just typing like the most ridiculous sentences. Um, And I, I feel like we were saying like titties, titties, like something stupid. And we had made a video of our phone saying that and like laughing and posted it to Facebook. And this was evidence that the defense brought. Oh my God, look at this. Per- look at how this person acts on their own time. They trying to make me out to be this terrible, terrible person. Um, use that as something like me being a normal kid playing with my phone with my friend. Turned into evidence of how I was like a bad person. And like, I was making up this whole thing. Uh, Bob also had a nephew who um, was autistic at the time. um, And, you know, Asperger's is now a term that is kind of outdated because it is um, associated with a Nazi, um, Hans Asperger's. But at that time, that was the diagnosis of uh, Bob's nephew. And they, you know, I was a kid. And he was also a kid. He was my brother's age. So I he treated him like I treated my brother. And I was like very mean to my brother. I was an older sister, an older sibling. I, you know, teased him, made him cry, all this sort of stuff. I did the same thing with this kid. Um, And he was a little annoying. Like I knew like he was annoying. And because he was a little kid and he was like my brother. And his defense team tried to bring it up that, like, you know, I was um, discriminating against, you know, people with special needs. And I knew that his nephew had special needs and that I was mean to him. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, I was 11 to 15. I was treating him like c- kids treat each other, like, you know, bullying him a little bit, teasing him like we were kids. But they use that, um to try and defame my character. I mean, you know, it's besides the point. Even if I was not the nicest person to this child, um, it still is not an excuse for the abuse that I suffered. Um, And it's honestly really pathetic that that was the only defense that they could come up with is that I was mean to his nephew. um, So I'm a bad person. Meanwhile, I have realized now that I am... 90% probably autistic myself so like for him to use that as like a defense like oh you're discriminating against uh, autistic people when it turns out that I am actually autistic as well hmm funny um but you know I also was a good kid <laughs> like I I was a goody two shoes in high school and throughout my whole childhood, I was always the the teacher's pet, the brown noser, the one who followed the rules. And, you know, I do attribute that to being autistic, following the rules and, and following routines and doing all that sort of stuff. I didn't um engage in any drugs or smoking or drinking. I wasn't like being a hoodlum around the neighborhood. I didn't do any pranks I didn't like I literally did nothing because this man made it so I didn't have a life so like I was a good kid and then he was like disparaging my character through this whole court case do they also use that instance of me talking to that other man in Florida to try and defame my character um it was very hard it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my life um, I had my boyfriend at the time. I had my two best friends there. I had my mom there. And, you know, I, I'm not sure if you guys have seen, like, all of the procedural shows and SVU and, like, you know, you can't just say euphemisms. You have to use technical terms, penis, vagina, inserted, you know, fingers, raped. Like, it was uncomfortable. I had to tell every detail of what happened that I could remember to the court in front of people that cared about me and I think that that was the hardest part was them knowing what happened to me like even to this day I still kind of dismiss and minimize I'm like oh it's not that big of a deal it's fine it's whatever like I'm still I hurt more for the other people in my life for having to know what I went through and know what happened to me um so yeah he ended up being found guilty I don't remember the exact charge um but whatever it was he got uh the maximum it was 10 years in prison um and so in around 2018 is when he started applying for parole and you know as I've said in previous episodes that's around the time that I started um my mental health really started deteriorating so like um When I was in high school and at the brunt of this abuse, like I was that salutatorian in in high school, the finished second in my class. And that was in part because I had no life and nothing but school. I put everything into school because that was all I was allowed to do. I wasn't really allowed to hang out with friends. I wasn't really allowed to have hobbies. I wasn't allowed to have a job. Um, So I did really good at school. And um, I forget where I was going with that. Oh, yeah. So, you know, because I was so focused on school and my grades and doing well and getting into a good college, you know, I never gave myself time to process what had happened to me. And I was able to compartmentalize and and just disassociate, shove it down, pretend it didn't happen. Um, So... You know, I I hesitated to share my story and I actually had shared this in a lot of detail on one of my friend's podcast, Jen Brennan. Um, I had her on for the eating disorder episodes and I did share my story there and I hesitate to share it because it's very personal. It's very difficult to think about still and I still have a lot of shame surrounding it. You know, why didn't I say, why didn't I stop it earlier? Why didn't I say something to somebody? Why didn't I, um, ask for help? And I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of people that blame me that listen to this for what happened to me and, um, think I'm a slut and a whore or whatever. And you can think that, but it's not true. You know, I was molested for almost five years by someone that I trusted by someone that made his way into my life under the pretense of being a father figure who knew that I was just a little kid that wanted to be loved and knew that he could take advantage of that and so you know it is sexual assault awareness month and so I wanted to share my story um not only to give you guys as listeners more of a a full perspective about where I'm coming from and um you know give you an idea of who i am and 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 how i've gotten to where i am today um but also just to kind of shed light on the fact that you know i'm seeing all this rhetoric about you know groomer about you know trans people and and queer people and the lgbtq community being groomers and like you know they're they're gonna abuse your children and they're going to um You know, you need to, we need to pass all this legislation to make sure that they're not near our children. And like, it was someone close to me and my family. It was from within my own home that someone abused me. It wasn't a stranger, it wasn't a drag queen, it wasn't, you know, the boogeyman on the street. This was a close family friend. And that I think is the biggest point that I wanted to get across is that like, you never know what people are capable of. This man fooled everybody, you know, except my dad. And that, I forgot that came up at court too, you know, that I had been questioned by the police and I lied. And, you know, I was a scared little kid and I didn't want my situation to change. I felt loved and I was getting gifts and presents and, you know, I felt special. My dad was the only person that noticed that something was wrong. And because of my history with him, you know, that pushed me farther away from him and pushed me more into Bob's grasp. Because my dad, the one who treated me like shit and who I hated, was trying to take my new dad away from me is how I saw it. You know, even though this man was abusing me and molesting me, I still felt like I was loved by him. It's fucked up. It is. And I have a lot of shame and a lot of guilt still that I deal with. But, you know, I, I do know that none of it was my fault. I was a minor the entire time. I was a child. Even if I was wise beyond my years, like, I was still a child. My brain wasn't fully developing. And it wasn't my fault. And it will never be my fault. Um, and I just... If you are a sexual assault survivor, I see you, and I am here with you. And it's really hard to, you know, hear these stories in the news about, you know, all this legislation going against trans people and for the sake of the kids and trying to protect the kids. And like, it's literally like, look in your own home. Pay attention to what's going on around you. Like, don't put up the blinders because it's so, so easy to put up the blinders. And people who are abusers, people who manipulate, they are so good at what they do. They had so many people. They tricked so many people. I still, like, I still can't get over the fact that it was five fucking years and my dad was the only person who ever said anything or, you know, was concerned. And, you know, I don't know. It also comes down to, I don't know. I don't know what I wanted to say with this episode, except share my story. I don't have like a message or anything, Um, but it's Sexual Assault Awareness Month. You know, make space for the people in your life and that are victims of sexual assault, survivors of sexual assault, it changes your entire life it changes your perspective on everything you know it has affected my mental health it has affected my intimacy it has affected my physical health um a lot of and you know because i had ongoing abuse for so long that is what classifies my ptsd as complex ptsd is it wasn't one traumatic incident like a car crash or a plane crash or something it was um a lot Of incidents over a a short period of time um and i just you know i don't i don't want you to like see the villain in everybody and like be worried about what's hiding in the in the shadows but i do want people to just be aware that like the real monsters are sometimes people that you would least expect So for all the survivors out there, um, you know, I I see you. I am here with you and I love you. I hope that you are getting the help that you need and if you're not ready for that, that's okay. But I hope that when you are ready that you start to find some peace and start to heal and take back the power that was taken from you. Um So yeah, um I'm just going to end this note with a big fuck you to Bob for taking away my childhood, um, for destroying my family, and then lying through your teeth the whole way and trying to blame the whole situation on me, a child. Um, <sighs> this was a really heavy episode. Thank you for being here. Thank you for making the space. To listen to this and to let me share. Um one thing that I am grateful for today, and I'm gonna um I'm gonna be really nice to myself and give myself a lot of grace. But I'm grateful that I took yesterday off as a mental health day. Um I had a really, really bad panic attack yesterday morning and, um, I was really ashamed that I didn't go to work and try to process uh, and try to just push through it. But I am grateful that I am at the space where I acknowledge that I am deserving of rest and I am deserving of love from myself. And that, um, you know, I'm grateful that I took the time for myself I'm also really grateful for for you guys. Um, I'm really glad that I have created this space where, you know, we can talk about hard things and serious things, but it feels safe to do so. So thank you guys for that. Um, so yeah, if this was your first episode listening, uh, this is not what they are usually like. They are not as heavy. Um, I mean, they still are heavy, but, you know, not as personal. So uh, with that, keep trying to get through the mentees and and crying in those shubbies and um if you or anybody you know is a victim of a sexual assault, I have resources in my bio- in the show notes for that. So please you're not alone. Um you're not broken like you can heal from this and things will get better. Um, all right. Thanks everybody. Bye. Thanks for joining for another episode. You can find the show on social media on Instagram and Twitter at Cryon underscore and underscore pod and on Facebook at Cryon and Pod. You can also find me personally on Instagram and Twitter at L-E-X-G-O-N-G-I-V-I-T. If you'd like to email the show, feel free to send us questions, comments, episode suggestions, and any other feedback you want us to see to cryingandtryingpod at gmail.com. The best way for a small independent podcast like us to grow is for our listeners like you to share your favorite episodes with your friends. You can also rate, leave a review, and follow the show on your preferred streaming platform and engaging in any of our social media posts will always help us be more visible. If you would like to support the show with a small one-time or monthly donation, you can do so through our podcast page on Anchor or through the Buy Me a Coffee page where blog posts related to the show are posted. All donations, no matter how small, go right back into the show so I can continue bringing you high-quality episodes. I am a proud member of the PodPros community and utilize PodMatch to connect with many amazing guests. This podcast is researched, recorded, produced, and edited by me, Lexi Hamsmith, using Anchor by Spotify. Thanks for listening.